Hello, I'm Tom Hauser. Super Bowl festivities are in full swing right now in Minnesota. The big game now just one week from today at U.S. Bank Stadium. Unfortunately, this is not breaking news, but the Vikings are not playing in the game as most Minnesotans had hoped they would. But Super Bowl Live kicked off Friday as barriers went in place and stages were set up for musical acts all week long. Fans from around the country will fly into Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport. And Josh Rosenthal got an in-depth look at how the airport will handle the crowds and keep everyone safe. It's not just the NFL Super Bowl, it is also one of the biggest events of the year for the TSA. The world will be watching the Super Bowl. On the day after the Super Bowl, it'll feel like the world is departing this airport. They're expecting nearly 70,000 passengers to depart MSP the Monday after the big game. That's about double an average day here, and it amounts to roughly 3,000 security screenings every hour. But don't worry, we have our resources in place. Every security lane will be open, so more than 30 at the two terminals combined. Also, more than 100 TSA officers are being brought in from out of state, along with more than 20 explosive detection canines, which can help the crowds move a little bit faster. Some of those extra officers will be manning these CCTV screens, which give them a bird's eye view of, well, just about everything. So if you're coming to the airport for the Super Bowl, there are going to be eyes in the sky watching you. Is that right? That is correct. And other officers will be manning these screens, which focus on your checked bags. How many of these bags do you think you look at every day? Uh, around 500. Altogether, the TSA says they're ready to dish out about an extra 1,000 hours of overtime to help you get through security safely and efficiently. After all, this is going to be our Super Bowl uh, here at TSA Minnesota. Now, if you do have to catch a flight after the Super Bowl, you might be wondering, how early should I get here? The TSA recommends that you are here in security, not parking your car, not checking your bag, but here in security, a minimum, a minimum of two hours before your flight. At MSP, Josh Rosenthal, Five Witness News. All right, some good advice. Governor Mark Dayton is ready for the Super Bowl. This week he announced he paid more than $6,000 for a lower-level ticket at U.S. Bank Stadium through a ticket broker. The governor said he felt obligated to go, being the governor of the state where Super Bowl 52 is being played. The State Management and Budget Office released a report on how the state handles sexual harassment. Governor Dayton requested the department review policies and procedures after allegations of sexual harassment surfaced at the state capitol. The report found that while the state of Minnesota's executive branch has a strong state policy prohibiting sexual harassment, more work can be done to improve the state's workplace culture. Drawing specific conclusions from the number of complaints within a workplace does not always provide a clear picture of the scope of the issue of sexual harassment prevention. That review only focuses on the executive branch and agencies where 266 complaints were filed between 2012 and 2017. The Minnesota legislature is working on its own set of new policies and procedures regarding sexual harassment. A new letter from Minnesota Public Radio's president describes allegations against Garrison Keillor that go beyond a single touch, as Keillor initially claimed. According to the letter sent Tuesday to NPR members and listeners, the woman accused Keeler of dozens of sexually inappropriate incidents over several years, including requests for sexual contact, explicit sexual communication, and touching. It says another person also filed a complaint claiming to know about some of the alleged incidents. Keeler released a statement on the allegations saying in part, quote, if I am guilty of harassment, then every employee who stole a pencil is guilty of embezzlement. 
New developments this week surrounding the investigation into the July 2017 shooting death of Justine Damon. Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman originally said he alone would decide whether to charge Officer Muhammad Noor, but we have learned a grand jury is being brought in to look at the case. Beth McDonough asked a legal expert how this could influence the outcome. This is the notice sent to random residents in Hennepin County advising them of their grand jury service. They're told to set aside five days over two months and to meet at the government center in downtown Minneapolis. That's where we've confirmed prosecutors will attempt to make a case that Minneapolis police officer Mohammed Noor should be held accountable for opening fire while sitting in his squad car, killing Justine Damon. Former federal prosecutor Steve Slisher, who's not involved with the case, calls the panel of everyday citizens an important investigative tool. Gather documents and things that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to get when to speak to people who may be reluctant to speak with law enforcement. Sources told me nearly 40 subpoenas were served to officers at the scene and witnesses, requiring them to testify about what they saw under oath. Prosecutors, along with the grand jury panel, can ask questions. Can someone take the fifth and not testify? Only if they would be in danger of uh, incriminating themselves based on their answer. Matthew Herity, Noor's partner, was subpoenaed. A spokesman for the police union said all of its members will cooperate. Bob Bennett represents the Damon family. He told me he welcomes this step to compel testimony. It's the secrecy of the grand jury that makes it such a powerful tool. And controversial, given the Hennepin County prosecutor has insisted publicly that he and he alone would decide whether Officer Noor committed a crime when he fired his gun. Beth McDenna, 5 Eyewitness News. If the grand jury believes there is probable cause, they could indict. If not, we may never know why, because proceedings and the names of jurors are private. Despite that, a prosecutor, in this case Mike Freeman, can still opt to pursue criminal charges, and he says he will make the final decision. The Minnesota Peace Officer Standards and Training Board voted to add three misdemeanors to the list of crimes that would trigger state review and potential discipline for officers. Right now, the board automatically revokes a license only when an officer is convicted of a felony. The three new crimes are misdemeanor domestic assault, fifth-degree assault, and fourth-degree DWI. If convicted of any of these crimes, the Minnesota Board of Peace Officer Standards and Training, the post board, would automatically get involved. The executive director of the post board says the changes make sense because convictions for any of those things, or at least two of the three, already prevent someone from becoming a police officer in the first place. If there's several convictions for which somebody is forever barred from being a police officer, it, it yeah. certainly should come uh, before the board once someone is a professional peace officer and gets convicted of that. But a critic of the post board doubts the new rules will change results in many cases because he claims the board already fails to hand out adequate punishment under current rules. Your discretion is generally used to excuse the officer over and over and over again. So adding three new things that you look at and then never discipline on is simply window dressing and is not what people have been expecting and asking of the post board. Lieutenant Bob Kroll of the Minneapolis Police Federation told me he doesn't oppose the post, post board move, but says the primary discipline and investigation should still be done by the officer's own department. Kroll says he doesn't want the post board to become another internal affairs unit. The Metropolitan Council is celebrating its 50th anniversary. 
The council, joined by Governor Dayton, hosted the council's annual State of the Region event, along with the anniversary celebration at the University of Minnesota. At that event, there was a panel discussion featuring former council chairs. The council says they carry on the proud tr tradition of shared action and coordinated planning that helps to ensure the quality of life in the metro area. One of the council's big responsibilities, of course, is operating metro transit. Governor Mark Dayton named a new top official for Minnesota's Information Technology Agency. Brigadier General Joanna Clyborne will take over on February 2nd. Her first job will be to fix the state's new computer system for license plates and tabs known as MINLARS after its disastrous rollout last year. Current Commissioner Tom Baden is retiring, citing health reasons. Republican State Representative Matt Dean dropped out of the Minnesota governor's race this week. He said the party needs to unite around a single candidate, and he endorsed Hennepin County Commissioner Jeff Johnson. A crowded field of Republicans is seeking to replace Governor Mark Dayton, who is not running for re-election. Former two-term Governor Tim Pawlenty might be weighing a bid after passing on a U.S. Senate run, but no final word there yet. And this week, six Democratic candidates running for governor participated in a candidate forum. It was hosted by Minnesota's environmental and conservation community. The candidates had the opportunity to share their vision on critical issues that impact the future of our natural resources and the health of our communities. This state oversight of, or the state oversight of senior health facilities was in the spotlight at the state capitol this week. It comes amid criticism that state agencies in charge of that have not been following through with investigations of maltreatment and abuse. This joint Senate committee hearing kicked off with testimony from senior care advocates. They cited reports of sexual assaults, malnourishment, and even physical abuse. The Senate Committee on Aging and Long-Term Care learned last year that just 10% of maltreatment complaints and only 1% of self-reported provider complaints were investigated by the Office of Health Facility Complaints. The legislature supplied an additional $9 million to hire more investigators and reduce caseloads. Christine Sundberg, the president of Elder Voice, says they'll be watching closely. We'll be monitoring their changes and improvements. And then we just ask, do it quickly. Because quite literally, our loved ones are being seriously harmed daily. And some are dying painful deaths. We were told at the beginning of the month, more than 2,300 reports remained undressed, while more than 800 cases were assigned for on-site investigation. Coming up, our political experts join me for political analysis, plus another version of the XFL that former Governor Jesse Ventura was involved in is coming back. Does that mean Ventura will be back? That story coming up next. And here is your deja vu moment of the day. The ill-fated XFL of 2001 is coming back, sort of. You'll recall our former governor, Jesse Ventura, was one of the first broadcasters of XFL football its first time around while he was also serving as governor of Minnesota. That league only lasted one season, and Governor Ventura had to go back to just being governor. Now Vince McMahon says he's bringing back another version of the XFL in 2020, but it will not include any crossover or connection to WWE wrestling or former wrestlers like Jesse Ventura. And now for political analysis, I'm joined by DFL strategist Darren Broughton and Annette Meeks from the Freedom Foundation of Minnesota. And we all remember those wonderful days back in the early 2000s when Governor Ventura had a lot of jobs. XFL football was just one of them. 
I know you're kind of hurt that he's not going to come back. Yeah. You will likely not watch XFL football because he's not back. You know, I won't, and I won't miss seeing our governor in a pink boa either. You know, just one of those things I won't miss. It, it's, it's funny how every now and then these things come up and remind us, Darren, of what a crazy time that was. It's a crazy time, but as we've seen in, also in Hollywood, I think shows like Full House and Trading Spaces come back, it just proves that anything that's really bad can come back and have a, another, <laughs> of another stint. Now, anyone who is a big fan of Full House or Fuller House, <laughs> like my kids, please write to Darren Roden, not to me. Uh, let's talk about, speaking of football, uh, all the hoopla is starting here in Minneapolis and the state of Minnesota, even though the Vikings, sadly, will not be in the Super Bowl. It is still a, a big window for the world on the state of Minnesota. And Annette, I know you were not a big fan of public financing for this stadium, but it certainly is bringing a, a big spotlight to Minnesota. Any second thoughts about your opposition to public funding for stadiums? Well, I, I certainly hope that the Super Bowl uh, events and all the things around the hoopla surrounding it go well. I hope people have a favorable impression of the Twin Cities and, and the state in general. But do we have to spend a you know a billion dollars in public financing to achieve that? Perhaps not. And you know, remember also, Super Bowls tend to go where there's a nice warm climate, not to the frozen north. So it's been what 26 years since it's been here. I hope we don't have to keep building new stadia to attract things like this. Well, if we do it right this time, maybe they'll be back sooner than that. Uh, Darren, does this validate the people who supported public financing and, and the good it can do for a community, do you think? It does. I think it puts a great spotlight back on our region, the state, and the Metropolitan Center in general. I think the amount of investment we've now made in multiple stadia, uh, we, we might be able to stadia out for a while. Uh, but I think with this and, and Allianz Field coming online here soon is a great piece about the regionalism we're building here. And maybe the stadium debates will be put at bay for a couple of decades, uh, maybe. Now, a lot was made this week of Governor Dayton talking about how he had to pay $6,000 through a ticket broker to go to the game. And some people were saying, you know, he's the governor of the state. He should have been given a ticket. Do you agree? Well, I'm not sure he should have been given a ticket, but I think Roger Goodell or someone from the NFL should have made tickets available at face price to the governor and other dignitaries that you expect to attend uh, an event like this. I don't know that he should have had to pay through a ticket broker. Do you agree? I think the governor or any public official should have to go through the same hoopla that any fan has to go through. And if it means he has to pay a little extra for a ticket, so be it. Because at some point, the governor may be faced with legislation concerning the NFL, and he may have to either decide to sign it or not sign it, and you don't want there to be any conflict of interest. So uh, perhaps it's best he paid like everybody else has to. Well, he certainly paid. Yeah. And, uh, $6,000 a ticket is kind of out of my range. I wonder if he had to sell more the, art. The, the, the good news is he can certainly afford it. Yes, so let's, right. uh, let's just leave that at that. Uh, on a more serious note, uh, to wrap up here, uh, new policies are being put in place to deal with sexual harassment at the state capitol when it comes to state agencies. This is separate from the state legislature. They're working on some things, too. But uh, this week, the Dayton administration said they're working on a whole list of recommendations to make it easier to report sexual harassment and eradicate it. And, and it certainly should be easy, and it certainly should be acted upon. I think what was most telling of reading some of the reports, that I, news reports of what was decided this week, is number one, we don't need more government agencies and oversight. We need them to act. When someone reports, they said that majority of the cases that the state agencies received were collaborated, and they were legitimate complaints. And to see those not acted upon is very sad. And you look at some of the agencies, corrections had 73 complaints over a five-year period. There was 266 altogether, so... Uh, 
that, that's a lot. 266, even if it's over five years, that's a lot, Darren. That is a lot, and it's disproportionately on a couple of agencies, corrections, MnDOT, uh, and human services. But I think the attention we also now have to direct to is to the legislature, which I think kind of helps spark this conversation. The le coming from someone who came from the legislature, there's not a great HR uh, department there that helps staff navigate these things, and I think the focus needs to go back on them. But what are they going to do differently? And both the House and Senate are also working on new policies, so we'll be hearing a lot about that when the legislature reconvenes not too long from now, just about three weeks away. But have to get through the Super Bowl first, right? <laughs> Annette and Darren, thanks for being here. Coming up, the government shutdown may have ended this week, but the debate that led to it is far from over. We're talking about that next on Face Off. The federal government reopened on Tuesday. Many of you may not have noticed it was closed, but the debate that led to the shutdown continues. That's because Democrats only got Republicans to agree to debate DACA legislation to resolve the fate of the 800,000 undocumented immigrants brought to the U.S. as children. The president has given Congress until March 5th to figure out an immigration deal. The bill the president signed funds the government for less than three weeks and reauthorized children's health care for six years. And now for face-off, former DFL party chair Mike Erlinson is here, along with Annette Meeks, doing double duty today from the Freedom Foundation of Minnesota. Let's start with that children's health care. That's a big deal for Minnesota. It essentially, for the current budget, balances our budget because now that money has been restored and the state is no longer on the hook for it. Well, that's a big deal for the budget, obviously, and so is the Republicans' tax bill in Washington that looks like it's going to be a windfall in Minnesota if the legislature doesn't do adjustments there. So, you know, I think this was part of what led to the Democrats' support for the continuing resolution for a few weeks was the fact that CHIP was a huge deal uh, and, a, and, and something that was very important to them and very important to ensuring health kids across our country. And it was extended for six years, so that debate we can set aside for a while. And that's a good thing. That's a, a good bipartisan agreement. I think what remains, though, is in three weeks we're going to revisit the same fight all over again and it's not going to get much better from from what's happened this past week and mike a lot of analysis during the week in the washington post new york times and elsewhere politico uh, they were saying that uh, democrats kind of blinked on this deal they realized that it was being portrayed as shutting the government down over illegal immigration and they realized that wasn't looking good well, the Democrats blink because, you know, having the government shut down is not good for anybody, right? And so they cut a deal uh, to do three weeks, which is not a very long uh, period of time, to try to address uh, those uh, dreamers, you know, which most people don't understand, right? These are people that were not brought here. Uh, they didn't sneak across the border, right? These, are, these were children that were brought here. And I don't think there's anybody that doesn't believe something should be done, including the President of the United States of America, to address that 1.8 million people in this country. So, you know, the Democrats, I think, did the right thing in opening the government up again, and now we move forward to see if we can get to some real solutions. And, and ultimately, do Republicans have to reach across the aisle to Democrats and work out a compromise on that issue, even though some of their base uh, maybe isn't real thrilled about it. Uh, most Americans think something needs to be done because, as Mike said, they came here as children. It was not of their own volition. They didn't break the law knowingly. I think most Americans would agree they should be held harmless. They were children. I think where the solution is going to come from is the more difficult part, and that's it's going to have to come from a bipartisan group of U.S. senators. It's not going to come from the House. House could solve this tomorrow. Um, it's the Senate where the difficulty lies, and certainly the Senate is miles away from what Governor or what the president proposed earlier this week. So they have a lot of work to do in a very short period of time. I think when the president gets back from his overseas trip, there should be a lot of focus on this because it's a big issue. Now, were you surprised the Democrats uh, backed down so quickly, given the fact that Republicans control the White House, uh, the House, and the Senate? You would think that 
they would think most Americans are going to blame the party in power. Well, I think in this point in time, the Republicans' message machine was working in the sense that the Democrats were being held accountable for uh, shutting the government down, missing the point that, to your point, Tom, that the Republicans are in charge of everything in Washington, D.C. And so the Democrats, being bit players, I think ultimately wanted to look at the big picture, which is it's not good for the country, it's not good for anybody, Democrat or Republican, if the government's shut down, and Americans don't like it. And they get that piece. They, they understand the government's shut down more than immigration. And finally, there, there was a poll that came out this week that shows a lot of these Democratic senators in red states that were carried by Donald Trump uh, are seeing their poll numbers, their approval ratings go down. Did, did that play some role in this, do you think? I think that plays a big role in it. And I also think that Democrats care more about government functioning than Republicans in general. I think that led to a lot of the Democrats caving so quickly. But I do think there's some Democrats uh, right in our next door state in, in North Dakota that are going to have some very tough reelections. Uh, Missouri, states that Trump carried that they now have unpopular incumbents. But the president himself is so unpopular, it seems counterintuitive that these senators in those red states that are Democrats would be in trouble. Well, you know, I think what's happening across this country right now, and the government shutdown is a really good example of this, is that, you know, and, and maybe even Trump's election is a great example of this. Americans are very frustrated with Washington being so broken and not being able to figure out how to address funding the government, you know, immigration, transportation, on down the list. And so... You know, the Democrats did the right thing by opening up the government again. But what's happening in the polls is that, you know, people used to always love their legislator, their senator, their congressman, and now those negatives are starting to catch up with the individuals as much as the institution. As Tip O'Neill said, all politics, local, That's right. uh, ultimately. Uh, Mike and Annette, thanks for being here. We'll be back in 90 seconds, and we'll show you the food options. People who are lucky enough to attend the Super Bowl at U.S. Bank Stadium will have to choose from. Minnesota's moment is here, and now we have an idea of some amazing food that fans will be offered inside U.S. Bank Stadium on game day next Sunday. They'll see Minnesota staples like walleye chowder, wild rice bratwurst, and a variety of cheese curds. There will also be dishes representing the two teams, like a New England clam roll and a South Philly roast pork sandwich. And this has to sting a little for Minnesotans after the Vikings suffered that tough loss to the Eagles. That team's logo is now painted in the end zone along with the Patriots logo on the other side. Hundreds of NFL workers have been at the stadium getting it ready for the game next Sunday. And now you can listen to episodes of At Issue every week on iTunes and Podcast One. We have links on how to do that posted on our website at kstp.com. And that is all the time we have for now. We hope to see you back here again next week for another edition of At Issue on Super Bowl Sunday.